When we were last in the book of 1 Peter together two weeks ago, we saw that Peter began a new section in this letter in chapter 4 and verse 12 by urging us to not be surprised when suffering comes our way. We're not to act as though some strange thing were happening to us when we suffer as a result of following Jesus. And we looked at that admonition two weeks ago where it says that instead of being surprised, we're to rejoice that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Well, Peter continues his instructions for Christians who are suffering for being Christians in our text this morning. Now, in the past, I think it's been a bit challenging for Christians, particularly here in the West, particularly in America, to really understand what it's like to suffer for being a Christian. We have known unparalleled religious freedom. And with that religious freedom has come a small amount of suffering for believers in America. But increasingly, we are learning what suffering may be like. Because it's no longer fashionable or even acceptable to hold to orthodox Christian teaching and to orthodox Christian convictions on a whole host of issues from human sexuality to marriage to sexual classification as male or female to different designs and roles for men and women in the home and in the church. Holding these convictions today and speaking out on them is a sure way to get yourself into trouble in the world we live in. Cross any of our culture's venerated social lines and you may get mocked, you might get blocked, you could be defrocked, And you may even get clocked. Some have lost friends over these issues. They've lost jobs. They've lost opportunities. Christianity is no longer the dominant influence in our culture. We are living in a post-Christian society. Our nation was never a Christian nation in the sense that everyone was a Christian. That would be absurd to believe that. But it was influenced, heavily influenced, by the Judeo-Christian beliefs of the founders and the citizens that made up this country for so many years. We are now living in a post-Christian society. And this means that we are finding ourselves and our views to be in the minority. Christians are finding themselves mocked, maligned, marginalized, 
and in the minority. If we haven't already, I believe the day is coming when each of us will suffer in some way for being a Christian. Now that suffering for being a Christian doesn't have to mean martyrdom. I don't want to overstate the case. It doesn't have to mean that we'll be imprisoned for our faith or that we'll be beaten for following Jesus. But it may very well mean that you'll be made fun of, ridiculed, ostracized, that you'll be left off the list of invitees, that you won't be considered a part of polite society. It may mean that you'll be passed over for that promotion or that you may even be given a cardboard box and asked to clean out your desk and escorted out of the building. This is the kind of thing that the Christians that Peter was writing to were beginning to experience. When Peter wrote this letter, 1 Peter, the persecution of Christians under Nero, the Roman ruler, had yet to reach its zenith and was only just beginning to be felt. So far, it hadn't resulted in widespread imprisonments or death, though those imprisonments and deaths would eventually come. And that's why this letter is so timely for us, I believe. We're living in a time very similar to those readers of this letter, the original readers. We're living in a time when Christianity has fallen out of favor and when social pressure against following Jesus is growing stronger and stronger. Peter's readers needed to be encouraged in their faith and instructed on what to do when they encountered personal suffering as a result of following Jesus. And today, we need that same encouragement in our faith and that same instruction about suffering. And so, let's pick it up again this morning at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. Peter continues. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we give thanks to you for your word, which shines as light in the darkness. A light that is greater than the darkness around us. Lord, we thank you for your truth, which 
builds us up into greater and greater Christ-likeness. As we yield our lives to the Spirit, as the Spirit applies these truths to our hearts, Lord, cause us to learn and grow as Christians, followers of Jesus. May we not be ashamed of the name of Christ, but may we be glad to be called a follower of Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to see in this section of Scripture five faith-filled responses when suffering for being a Christian. How to respond when we suffer as a result of following Jesus. Here are five faith-filled responses. First of all, know that you are blessed. Verse 14. Know that you are blessed. Peter says in verse 14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ... This verse shows us that one of the primary ways that believers were suffering during this period was by being reviled. To be reviled is to be demeaned. It's to be mocked. It's to be insulted. In 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul talks about being reviled and slandered for being a Christian. He says there in 1 Corinthians 4.13 that we as Christians have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things even until now. Christians were in the time that Paul wrote that oftentimes viewed as the enemies of society for their unwillingness to worship the Roman pantheon of gods, to worship the Roman emperor. And in so doing, they were, it it was viewed, inviting ill upon their nation, calamity upon their nation. And so they were viewed as enemies of the state oftentimes. Scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Notice, too, that it's not just being reviled that Peter has in mind here, but being reviled for the name of Christ. It's being made fun of, not because you're awkward or clumsy, as many of us may be, but because you are serious about your walk with Jesus. Not every instance of being made fun of is persecution. Sometimes we deserve being made fun of a little bit. And we would do well to laugh at ourselves a little bit more than we do. What Peter has in mind here is when we're reviled, demeaned, talked down to because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of our convictions, because of the way we live, because of what we believe. If this happens to you, And you're reviled because you love Jesus. Peter says, you are blessed. You are blessed. He said the same thing back in chapter 3. Peter has a way of repeating himself. And uh, that's a good thing. That's part of teaching. 1 Peter 3, verse 14 
But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You're blessed for suffering for Jesus' sake. You're blessed when you're reviled. Blessed of God. God's blessing is upon you. God is pleased with you. You are accepted by God, though you are rejected by society. You are blessed. It's precisely what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. There's reason for rejoicing because you are blessed. Blessed of God. And there's reward awaiting you. You are in. You are considered in the kingdom. You are considered in the family. The inheritance is yours. You are blessed. So what is it about being reviled for following Jesus that necessarily translates into us being blessed? Peter says the reason we are blessed is because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now what does that mean? Well, the spirit of glory and of God could also be understood as the spirit of glory who is the spirit of God. That's how the Net Bible translates it. I think that's a good way to understand it. Enduring reviling, enduring mocking, and being demeaned is a sign of the Spirit's presence in our lives, the Spirit's work in our lives, the Spirit's fruit in our lives, and therefore a reason for assurance of faith. If we didn't really believe this stuff, if it wasn't true of us, if we hadn't been born again unto a living hope, at the first sign of opposition from the culture around us, surely we would flee and say, it's not worth it. No thanks. Enduring reviling is a sign of the Spirit's presence upon us. Jesus explained this from a negative perspective in the parable of the soils and the seed that was sown upon the rocky soil. That person is the person who seems to receive the seed of the gospel initially, but then they encounter trouble and persecution, and they seem to walk away from it all at the first sign of resistance. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 20. The one on whom seed, that is the gospel, was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. It's a false convert right? 
A person who professes faith in Jesus Christ, and yet when the difficulties come, when there's pushback culturally, when someone begins to revile them or make fun of them or ostracize them, when it begins to cost them something, they say, no, I'm out. So when we're reviled for following Jesus, and instead we endure it, and continue following Jesus, it is a demonstration of the genuineness of our faith. It shows that we're the real deal. That our faith is of such a nature that it will hold within the storm. That we're not merely fair-weather Christians. We can rejoice and be glad, as Jesus said, knowing that our reward in heaven is great. Knowing that we are true Christians, that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. You are blessed. We have to tell ourselves that, right? Because it hurts. It hurts to be reviled. It hurts to be persecuted. It hurts to be ostracized. Those costs cut deep. And yet, in that moment, we need to remind ourselves of this truth that we are blessed and that our suffering for the sake of Christ and our continuing to endure in our faith in Christ is a sign of a genuine work of Christ in our lives. So count yourself blessed. Secondly, a faith-filled response. Make sure that you're not suffering because of your sin. So this is just a little check, right? A little check. Don't want to assume things here. If you're suffering, don't immediately assume, it must be because I'm following Jesus. Peter wants to remind us here that all suffering is not Christian persecution. Some of our suffering comes not from our stand for Christ, but from our straying from Christ. And Peter calls us here to make certain that our suffering is not caused by the sin of our lives. Suffering from sin or because of sin can be, be come to us because we are sowing. We have sown sin and now we're reaping the consequences of that sin, right? You sow a bad decision, you reap a bad consequence. Sow a sinful action, you reap a suffering consequence. Some suffering from sin can come as the direct correcting work of God in our lives as he seeks to purify us and correct us and get our attention. Peter has emphasized throughout this letter the importance of the Christian living a holy life. That those who have been born again to a living hope, chapter 1, verse 3, and who are being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verse 2, we are therefore a holy priesthood, chapter 2, verse 5, and a holy nation, chapter 2, verse 9. 
And because this is true about our identity, our identity is holiness and our position in Jesus Christ is holiness. Peter also states in 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, we are not to be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The Christian is never to get to the point where they are lackadaisical about sin, where they don't, they don't care about sin. They're not grieved over their sin. They're not repenting over their sin. Where they're taking steps to avoid sin. This is important for the believer. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Abstain. Don't dabble. Don't play around. Don't get comfortable. But abstain. Peter's call to the church is a call to holiness. And suffering that comes as a result of our sinfulness is not a cause for rejoicing, but for repenting. The Christian doesn't sin all the more that grace may all the more abound. Far from it. 1 Peter 2.20 What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And this too is a faith-filled response. It shows the willingness on the Christian's part to do the hard work of self-examination. A little bit of reflection. Why am I going through this? Why am I experiencing this right now? Is there something in my life that the Lord's trying to correct me from? Is this merely me reaping the result of sown sin in my life? Or is this really the result of following Jesus and suffering for it? Make sure that you're not suffering for sin. Thirdly, don't be ashamed of being a Christian, but rather glorify God. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God. You see, when we suffer for being a Christian, for following Jesus, it's not a time for shame, but for glory. Not our own glory, of course, but God's glory. We don't need to be ashamed for following Jesus. As the old hymn says, Though none go with me, still I will follow. That's a person who's not ashamed. Doesn't matter what the crowd does. It doesn't matter what most people think. I'm going to follow Jesus and not be ashamed. We don't need to be ashamed for being a Christian. Shame leads to silence. Shame leads to regret. Shame leads to retreat. We're not to be ashamed of following Jesus, but rather we're to use our suffering 
to glorify God. Verse 16 there, Peter says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, a Christian, followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. You remember that from Acts chapter 11, verse 26. The term Christian was a new term. And it was used to identify someone with Jesus Christ. It was to be a Christ partisan, a Christ follower, one who was identified with Jesus Christ. And it was originally probably intended as an insult. But very soon this term Christian became a badge of honor for those who believed in Jesus. Instead of being ashamed by it, they saw it as a means of glorifying God as they identified closely with their Savior, Jesus Christ. No, we're not to be ashamed to be Christians, but we're to use the time and the opportunities and the circumstances of our lives to glorify God and glorify His Son. Peter's a great example of not being ashamed for following Jesus, but glorifying God instead after the resurrection. You recall in the book of Acts, chapter 5, when Peter and the apostles were hauled before the authorities and commanded not to preach about Jesus anymore, that they refused. And so they were flogged and ordered once again not to preach in the name of Jesus. And it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, So they, the Peter and the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name, public shame. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They weren't ashamed, but they used the opportunity God had given them to glorify God and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Though they had suffered shame for his name, they weren't ashamed of his name. They were rejoicing instead. The greatness of Jesus' name means that we will be willing to endure the dishonoring of our own name Such is the value judgment of the Christian. Mock me, if you will. Deride me, if you must. But I will always be a Christian. I will always speak highly of my Savior, Jesus Christ. May God make it so. A fourth faith-filled response. Remember that God will judge. Remember that God will judge. Peter's logic here in verses 17 and 18 can be a little bit hard for us to follow. Let me just read it again for you. Verses 17 and 18. 
For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of a godless man and the sinner? When Peter says it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, he's not talking about the judgment of condemnation. He's not talking about eternal conscious punishment. Right? Because he's talking about Christians there, the household of God. Earlier in 1 Peter, he talks about how Christians are being built into God's spiritual house. So he's talking about Christians. So what kind of judgment is he talking about? He's not talking about the judgment of condemnation. He's not talking about judgment for sin in an eternal sense. Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a promise. If you're not claiming that on a regular basis and reminding yourself of that glorious truth of the gospel, well, you're missing out on your inheritance. This is our promise. Our sins are forgiven. They have been dealt with at the cross. The eternal just judgment against our sins that was so necessary by a holy God has been satisfied through the sinless life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. So that you will never answer eternally for your sins. Jesus answered for your sins on the cross. You receive that by faith as a gift. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So what is this judgment here that is starting with the household of God? Well, it is the purifying and cleansing judgment of the Lord. Peter is quoting from several passages in the Old Testament here, chiefly Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. And he's tying them together here. But here's what he's saying. He's making a comparison from the lesser judgment to the greater judgment. It's a comparison from the lesser to the greater. If the church who has been bought with a price, who is already holy and beloved, faces the Lord's judgment even now, how much more severe will be the judgment of God on those who do not obey the gospel of God? If we suffer now as the beloved of God, if we suffer now because of our own sin at times, and God needs to correct us and judge us in that temporal sense, in that momentary light affliction sense. If that's true for us who are beloved of the Lord, what will it be like for those who have rejected the good news of God in His Son, Jesus Christ? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Peter further illustrates this truth in verse 18 by quoting from the Septuagint translation of Proverbs 11.31. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? 
Turn with me uh, to 2 Thessalonians. So go to your left. Second Thessalonians. I want to show you something where Paul says much the same thing. And I think it really helps to illumine and illustrate this passage, which can be a little bit difficult for us to understand. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse six. Second Thessalonians one six. Paul says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He says, Look, there's coming a day of judgment. Right, And one day your troubles are going to be over and their troubles are just going to be starting. Verse 8. When his mighty angels, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one thing that sends people to hell. Ultimately. And it's the rejection of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. Verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Remember that God will judge. Remember, God is going to judge those who reviled and persecuted us in this life. We don't glory in that. We don't revel in that. But we were reminded that God is a God of justice. It's not our job to judge them now or condemn them. Our job instead is to bless when we are cursed, right? Not to give a a curse in return for a curse, but a blessing instead. Leaving judgment and condemnation in God's hand. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So, a faith-filled response is to bless those who curse you and leave it up to God with his judgment, knowing that it is certain. Fifthly, and finally, entrust your soul to the faithful creator. Entrust your soul, your whole person, your whole Life, including all of the various circumstances that make up your life, and trust it all to the faithful Creator. Instead of seeking to get even with those who revile us, we who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust our souls to 
the faithful creator. The verb there is in the present tense, which means that we are to keep on entrusting our souls. It's not a one-time event, right? Very few things with us are. We can point to our justification, but that's because of God, right? Most things with us, it's an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing process. It's something that we have to continually remind ourselves to do. Keep on entrusting your soul, your life, your circumstance to God who is faithful. You see, the Christian understands that our lives are lived under God's good and gracious care for us. And that even includes times of great suffering for our faith. In such times, we're to remind ourselves that our suffering is according to the will of God. That our suffering too is part of God's good plan for us in which he is causing all things to work together for our good. And it is this faith that will help us to entrust our souls, entrust our circumstance, entrust our family, entrust our career, entrust our finances, entrust everything to our good God and creator who made us and gives us life and breath and all things. Because he's the creator, he owns us. We we can take credit for nothing and everything has come to us because of his good hand. Because he's the creator, he's also in control. He has all power. He's sovereign over our circumstances and the days of our lives. And that will help us in the midst of our suffering, to continue to do good. Doing what is right is how he ends it. Continuing to do what is right. Continuing to do the right thing. To live your lives excellently among the Gentiles, as he said earlier in the letter. Doing good to others. Responding rightly. Not giving eye for eye or tooth for tooth, but blessing when we are cursed. Jesus, of course, serves as our greatest example of this kind of a faith-filled response to persecution. Peter has already pointed us to Jesus as our supreme example in suffering. Look back with me at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth and while being reviled same word as we've encountered in this passage in chapter 4 when we're reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself. He kept entrusting himself. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
As Job, considering all that he suffered, confessed, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? The longer we follow Jesus and the darker this world gets, the more we can be sure that following Jesus will result in suffering for Jesus. We might be made fun of. We might lose relationship. We might lose out on income or opportunities. But this should not surprise us. This should not shock us. Jesus said we would experience suffering for following him. That the slave is not greater than the master. As he experienced suffering in the world, so we should expect to experience the same. But he left us his example. He left us his spirit as our comforter and teacher. And he left us his word as our infallible guide. With all of these on our side, we can respond to suffering with faith and endurance. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Five faith-filled responses. Know you're blessed. Make sure you're not suffering for sin. Don't be ashamed of being called a Christian, but glorify God. Remember that God will judge those who persecute you and entrust your soul, your life, and all your circumstances to the faithful creator continuing to live for Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our example in suffering. That when you were reviled, you did not revile in return, but instead you offered a blessing. You said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. You kept on entrusting your soul to your heavenly Father. In fact, there as you hung on the cross, as you breathed your last, you said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, entrusting your soul to your faithful Father. That same Father is our Father. You, Lord Jesus, have proven your worth, your trustworthiness, and going all the way to the cross, all the way to death on our behalf. Help us to entrust our lives, our circumstances, our suffering to you and continue to do what is right and glorify your name as Christians. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.